How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nailed it. Nailed it as always. That was the ranch version. The ranch version, yes. Is this because of what your background is for our viewers? Mark That's has a right. background full of hosts that are just... Teleporting. Absolutely. And ambling about. And there are no naysayers in that group. No. It looks like a sunset. Thank you. Uh, I'm just going right over that. I love the <laughs> And the sunset and be where you want to be. Yeah. I'm on a ranch tonight. It's beautiful. Well, I can see this is definitely one of your main backgrounds. Oh, Thank you. Thank you. Lipitin, I love Thank it. You. I love He's it. Just, He's ready on the he drums. Is so ready. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. No horse in a round. Oh, tonight. like a horse. Oh. Is okay. Like a horse. Okay, Doc, that's a hat trick. I, that's I a quota. I was wondering what ranches had to do with the state of Maine. Yeah, right. Yep. Yep. Well, those things happen. Speaking of you, Tom, how are you, Tom? What's been going on with you this week? I'm doing great, Dr. Joe. It's been a busy week. Uh, had a few meetings today. One very nice meeting with a lovely lady, Miranda Jaleo, who's the head of the theater department at Bridgewater State. Ooh, uh, that's something a brewing there, eh? What's there going is on? something a brewing. So, when I graduated Bridgewater State, it was the degree in communications, a very useful uh, degree, all comm majors will attest, but I made it work. And <laughs> I had a minor in theater arts because. It was under the communication school. Mm. Now it's its own thing, which means I could major in theater. And I only had six credits left to do a major, to complete that major. So why not? Why yeah. not? Congratulations. Why not? Yeah, I think that's great. It really is. You know, and having a small theater background myself, I could do nothing more than applaud your choice. Thank you, thank you. It's what I love. So yeah, Ben, Ben missed that one too. Curtains for that one. Um, so uh, sorry, sorry. Thankfully, I these thank, thankfully these horses are still alive. It sounds like you might be beating. Ah, uh, good. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Okay, so you guys will rein me in. So oh, I, I, yeah. I, I don't know what's going on with me tonight. You know, maybe it was my breakfast. I had pancakes and stirrup. <sighs> Oh, man. Okay. Listen, enough of this. We actually... Oh, we, yeah. Let's let's introduce our guest. We, this is... it's Folks, I know we've been joking around tonight, but, but we're going to really shift. We've got some powerful stuff to talk tonight. Tom, introduce yeah. our guest, please. We're power sliding here, but important topic. He is a graduate of UCLA with a BA in writing, an experienced traveler of Europe, Africa, and South America and has over 30 years in the field of clinical hypnotherapy. He's proud to volunteer with the Samaritans, a suicide prevention organization, and is a valuable new member of the team at Riverside Trauma Center. Thank you for joining us, Larry Shapiro. Thanks yeah. so much for having me. Really, We are it. so glad that you're here, Larry Shapiro. And, and 
Riverside Community Care, you know, I, I have some affiliation with them. Right. Let's start there. What are you doing with us uh, over at Riverside? Well, I just hooked up with the organization. They called me a couple of days ago to ask me. They have a new uh, arm there that's going to be for disaster relief. Asked me if I wanted to participate in that. And as I always do, I said, yeah. Uh, I facilitated the uh, Samaritan when we were alive instead of Zoom. I facilitated the support group for people who have lost a loved one or a family member to suicide at the Needham office. Mm. And so I got to know like Larry Berkowitz and some of the other people just from being around. I thought, what a quality bunch of people. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to work with them. And I let that be known. And uh, they started passing around the book I wrote and they, they encouraged me and uh, 74 years old to get a job and feel pretty good about that. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there is hope folks is and uh, just a good bunch of people to be around. I really respect what they do. Yes. Thank you. I, I, um, I echo that uh, Larry uh, Berkowitz and China Bridger and all of them, they are remarkable, but the whole of Riverside community care, yeah. the work that we're doing statewide when it comes to helping people manage trauma, especially right now in COVID. Actually, uh, a few weeks from now, uh, they're hopefully going to be coming back on the show for a follow-up oh, uh, to tell us how things have been going through COVID. You mentioned a book. This is part of why we are here tonight, uh, to, to do a deeper dive into this very powerful book, Brain Pain. Can you just tell us a little bit about it, Larry? Yeah, I'll show the cover. So, so for our listening audience, it is a children's book. There is what looks like a green mountain, and sitting right on the peak is a young child. No, actually, sitting on the peak is an older man. That's my dad. Oh, go on. Oh, 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 there we are. Now I can see it. Yeah, so as we were speaking, talking about it, I lost my dad to suicide when I was 18 years old back in 1965. And uh, there was no such thing as support. I mean, I think the only people I knew, I was 18 years old, the only people I even knew about that had taken their own lives were the Hemingway and Marilyn Monroe. You know, you'd hear about it if it was a celebrity, but, uh, it, you know, it's affected my whole life. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if he hadn't done what he did. And I'm pretty, my friends who know me, the, you know, I'm, a, I'm the kind of guy that likes to turn lemons into lemonade. You know, there's all sorts of misery in the world, we know, but you've got to work on something, in my mind, something to do to make it better. And uh, I said, there's no books for any kids. We all have a child inside of us. So it's not just for little kids. It's for people that can get anything out of it and that know somebody that's been through it. It's a tool. It's a tool to discuss the subject openly and get it out of the closet. Let suicide stop being the S word. That's that's my crusade. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people are so reluctant to talk about suicide? Well, it has the idea of being you're crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, you can, people can talk about cancer. You can. The other thing is you can't see it on film like cancer. You can see a tumor on cancer. You can see heart disease. You can't necessarily see anything that's going on in someone's mind. And if the person, my father had, had written a note and they put him in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. But some people you don't even, so many times I've heard and you as a psychiatrist, I'm sure I had no idea he was feeling that way. Mm -hmm. So I really am working also to let people know what the signs are to look for in people. 
And there's apps now even that a person can go to to uh, test out where they're at on the scale of people that might be likely. And uh, that's where I'm at with this right now. You were 18. How old was your dad when he completed this? He was just 60. Mm -hmm. I said just 60. You know. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, when I turned 60, what a perspective that gave me. Mm. It wasn't as old as I thought. Yeah. I was so, I, and I'm this age too. I mean, I know there's been advances and I've had the benefit of better medical care and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, he was getting the best care that they thought at the time. But giving a person Valium and shock treatment and to me doesn't seem very soothing and helpful. And he was a very, he was an athlete. He was a very strong man, strong-willed man, very quiet. And it just broke his will the way I look at it. Uh, when, when he was gone, there was almost a sense of relief that he didn't have to go through what he was going through anymore. And uh, so people think it's cold when you say relief, but we're not so bad about that when someone dies of cancer and they've been going through terrible things or other diseases. And it's a mental health disorder, a disease, I should say. It's another thing. I don't like using the word disorder. Uh, I know you don't either. I, I call no, it PTS. I, I never say PTSD. That's right. No, yeah. no. As soon as you use the word disorder, you you separate people into two groups. Yeah. One group that is ordered and one group is not. And then we're all astonished we have stigmas. So I'm so glad that, that you are right there in that camp. You Big have time. to have to move away from some of these words. I mean, there's suicide, which is pretty intense to begin with, but what happens when a parent suicides? And that really is another area that a lot of people don't even have a way to begin addressing. And Larry, that really is is the book. I mean, can you just walk us, walk us through a little bit? Because it, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I got a chance to listen to it. It's powerful i'm assuming that was that you doing the narration and reading yes. it yes yeah. just walk us through it so so we, people understand what it is that the story it, that you're telling telling it's fully illustrated by the most wonderful woman in the world her name is trish flannery she lives in the netherlands and uh, i taught found her by talking to a friend in the dog park hmm. which is a good place to find people believe it or not and i told her sent her the words to the story and she loved it she's not a survivor but she offered to do it for not a penny mm. that if if and well when money was earned she could be paid but she did it because she knew the importance of what we were doing and she is my heroine yeah. wonderful person basically this starts off by putting kids in touch with the reality of death the first once upon a time, there was a tree, and the tree had to be cut down because the bugs got to it, and the tree surgeon had to put it out of its misery. We move along to a bird who was in a storm and got hurt, broke its wing, and they had to euthanize the bird. There was a uh, man who was blind with a C&I dog once upon a time, and I, these all start with once upon a time to carry the kid's story feeling in it. And uh, his C&I dog was hit by a car. The dog died. But there was a wonderful bond of love, and it continued to go in the man's heart forever and ever. Then we take it to a little old lady, and how she had a wonderful life, and she was surrounded by people that loved her, and she decided not to be in the hospital anymore, but to go home where she was comfortable, and she 
died peacefully in their sleep at home. And that's where I transitioned to my dad, which was once upon I had a dad, and I talk about his emotions, how he could be happy some days, sad some days, and uh, things that happen in everybody's home. There is emotion. The parents have emotion. Uh, my dad could get pretty angry, but he never laid a finger on me. Uh, he just he had a temper and part of suicide. I also think one of the things that happened to him, he was born in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and he married my mother and he moved to California. And I don't think being in Los Angeles is healthy. That's why I'm living in Massachusetts now. It didn't do him any good. But it's to take people through that the pain was in his head. That's why it's called brain pain. And for those of you that are watching that don't have never heard of it, there's a suicidologist, Edwin Snydman, who is brilliant and written the best books, I think, on this subject. And he called what's going on in the head of a person who's suicidal a psychic. And I thought that nailed it. I thought that really was uh, the way to describe it. So I took psychic down to brain pain so it would be more relatable to kids. And it tells them that I went through it. And that I, my, I, you know, I don't talk about means. I don't talk about anything. I just said he had had enough, and when he had had enough, he was gone. And I then let kids know, you know what? I've missed him. I've gone through the pain, but I also grew up. I also had kids. I have grandkids now, and life goes on, and life can be okay. And facilitating support groups, I know how long it can take. I mean, I'm I'm 55 years out, but I watch people who are days out, weeks out, and they don't believe the pain will ever end. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for a child to know the pain. You can grow out of it. It takes time. And that there are people around that do care about you that you can talk to about it. I want the conversation to start. Yeah. Uh, 18. You were 18. How, how did you make sense of it at 18? It's different making sense of it 55 years later. Well, I wish I, my mother would have told us about the note that he had left before he went into the uh, psychiatric hospital. Oh. But, and I was 18, and, you know, it was like, I, at 18, I, I was a grown-up, going to UCLA, and uh, but I just said, I guess my dad thought I was old enough. You know, you don't ever get to ask anybody what you were thinking, how about me? But I had developed a really close relationship with him because I knew he was going through a lot, and I used to go up to his room at night and massage his back. Hmm. No conversation, really. And I got hmm. him to buy tickets, so we went to college football games uh, for a season, and I got him into bowling because I was into bowling. So, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here now knowing uh, I had a relationship with him because my oldest brother, Mike, he worked with him, so he had that, but it's not the same. And my brother, Ned, to this day, still is angry. Angry at my dad, angry at my mom, and he's 78, 76 years old, whatever. Hmm. Uh, we each went through it differently. So, uh, but I also know that I swore to myself, no matter how bad anything ever got from me, I would never do that to my children. And you can make that promise, but you don't ever really know. But I realized what it did to me and I wasn't going to baddest things. God, I'm here for them. And I just, I've gone through depression. I've gone through a lot of things. Uh, but fortunately I had the right people around. It's what, so important to have the right people around. What was what was your father struggling with? Depression. Just a debilitating chronic depression? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 90% of the people that commit suicide 
I just said something I don't ever. You did. I, I'm oh, yeah. so surprised at you, Larry. Yeah, wow, isn't that fascinating? That happened once before. They, my my father took his life. Is what I meant to say. Yeah. Uh, and now I don't even remember where I was going with it. I threw myself. Ninety percent. No, ninety percent of the people suicide. who take their own life. Yes. Have depression, but ninety percent of yes. the people that have depression do not take their own life. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you know I, I I do want people to to just imagine what that must be like, because we are designed to survive. I mean that that's what that's we, the essence of a man and uh, human beings. Yes, and all yet animals. You come to a point where you just can't. You just can't. It's not weakness. Nope. It is just a sense of, you know, I'm, I can't, I just can't do this anymore. Yep. The Very, pain. You mentioned, you mentioned signs to look for. Can you share some of those? The standard signs of depression are just quietness, low activity, low zest for life. You see somebody starting to give some of their personal belongings away. That can be a very strong uh, indicator. Uh, if they're drinking a lot, a lot of people tend to self-medicate. Those are some of the big signs. And, and Mark, it's, it's okay to ask someone. It's vital. Yeah, you, you, you have to be able to say to someone, are you okay? Uh, are you are you feeling like you want to die? Yeah. There's and there's a difference because as a psychiatrist, you know, I, I, I have this remarkable honor and privilege of working with many, many, many people who feel this way. Yeah. And I will ask them, do you want to die or do you wish you had a different life? Mm. Good question. Is a good question. And if it's a different life, and we use the I am, you know, because all my all my patients use the I am, you know, the four domains, home, social, biological, and I see. For some people, it is just biological. They have their lives, they've got wonderful homes, they have wonderful relationships, they feel that they are valued, but there's a biological component, yep. and they just can't. We know that there are some people who respond to medications. We know that there are some people who have a transporter difficulty because we have to be able to transport certain chemicals in our brain from one place to another, like serotonin. We know that there are some people who have deficiencies and transport molecules that just aren't working. But the sadness, the overwhelming sadness. We've all felt sad, yes. right? I mean, we've all felt sad. And that's why we can sort of relate to this. And we think, whoa, what's that tipping point? So, Larry, for your dad, I mean, as you look back on it, what do you think the, the tipping point was for him? That's a good question. Uh, I know he had it planned. I'll tell you a little mm -hmm. bit about the day he passed. I think he just was not happy with anything. He would sit in the chair, the TV would be on at night, and... I mean, we, had, we made a deal out of it, but if he'd laugh at something, we'd say, ah, see, you're happy, you're laughing, because it was so rare. Mm. And I just think it's like going in a spiral down. I just don't think he saw a way out. 
the day he uh, died, he had been down at work with my oldest brother worked with him. My oldest brother came home. I, and my dad evidently was about 10 miles from where he worked to our house. And he, one of the gardeners in the neighborhood saw my dad drive by our house, stop for a moment in front of the house and drive on. And what he was doing, I'm sure was saying goodbye in his own mind to all of us. He didn't want to take his life at home didn't want us to have to go through that. He went back to his office and he took his life. And I think he probably knew that it would be my mom and my uncle who we worked with that would find him. But he was miserable. That's why I say there was some form of relief for him to be, he, he was a star athlete for him to be in a hospital. I went to, they had a dance there. I went to the dance. And he's dancing with this woman, and I have always described it as this would be like watching zombies dance. And that was my father. It broke my heart. This man that was so strong and, and polite and courteous and always opened the door for my mom. And he taught me how to be a gentleman. But he was hurting. He was hurting for a long time. And this, this was a matter of years. And to this day, and I think anybody that's gone through what I've gone through, you always try to think, what, what were they thinking at the last moment? What was going on? And you're not privy to that. You'll never be privy to that unless you yourself find yourself in that position. And uh, hopefully I can be of some help with people to help them avoid that. Larry, are you the, are you the youngest in your family? Yes. My dad was the youngest of eight kids. It's interesting. And my, and he, my uncle had a heart condition and he was really my, my grandfather had died uh, like around 1935, so he lost his dad pretty early to a heart condition, too. So, uh, yeah, I was the youngest. And it's a good thing I had those two brothers, and I'll tell you what, that was my support group. We were there for each other. My mother never talked about it. But, but, and my best friend, who I met when I was 11, I called him to tell him what happened. And he said, I'm here I, you have both of my ears. I'm here to listen. That's the most important thing you can tell a survivor, that you're going to listen. You're not there to give speeches and tell them things will get better. Uh-uh. Yeah. Be, there, be there for a person going through depression to listen to them. And, and I think that is so important because you will not know what to say, but you can listen. How do they get the book, Larry? How can they get it? You go to my website, which is one long word, brainpainbook.com. You will be able to, number one, you'll hear an audio book that I'm reading the story with the artwork passing through, so you make sure it's for you. Uh, there's a story of my situation, what I went through, and there's a place where you can order the book, which is uh, $9.95. I didn't want to be up in the $20, $30 range. I wanted to reach people. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I hope I hope people will purchase this with the understanding that if you are one of the people who needs to purchase it, our thoughts are with you. And this book can help you realize that you're not alone in this. Uh, you are not alone. You are not alone. The Samaritans, tell us a bit about the Samaritans and the work you do with them. What a wonderful group of people. Uh, when I was in California, I went to a support group run by uh, Camrio Hospice. And I also participated with a group 
name will come back to me. I work with ASFP and through them, I found the support group there. But in California, you have to have a MFCC license to even facilitate a support group. Hmm. And when I moved to Massachusetts, the first day I looked for support groups, because I feel it's so important. And I found the Samaritans. And I went to one of their meetings. First meeting I went to was in Quincy. And I told them a little bit about the book and, uh, which hadn't been published yet. And I get a call. I go to about three meetings and I get a call from the, uh, from Emily Davis, who's not with them any longer, but she was the uh, manager of the support group and an incredible human. She says, why don't you consider being a facilitator? And it was like, it's like what I always wanted to do. And is talk to people about it, be there. You know, when you have 50 odd years of experience of what it's like to live as a survivor of this, you, uh, you can answer a lot of questions for people. You know, I, even with my book, my email on the website is it's wide open for anybody that wants to contact me, contact me, ask questions. We'll talk. Yeah. I'll help you find a support group if you need one. Yeah. It, it's, it's so important that people know that you do not have to worry alone. You, you yes. do not have to go through this alone. You, you've already lost someone. You, you have lost a voice that you will never hear again. You don't need to suffer now in silence. There will be you know, and you know this, doctor. Death's going to happen everywhere. People go through death. I emphasize this in the group. You know, we're, we're all part of a group that we didn't ask to join. We're members for life. Mm. And the healing of that group, when people get to talk to other people that have gone through a similar experience of that type of death, this type of death is so different from everything else. That's because that's how we've been educated. In many ways, it's not. But again... This has been a lifesaver to a lot of people to have these support groups, and the Samaritans has done the best job of it I have ever seen. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, when, when the uh, pandemic hit, we wound up going to Zoom meetings, and everyone was very concerned about that. You know, it opened it up for people that were out of state to be part of our group. It opened it up to people that, you know, don't want to get in the car and drive in the snow and come to a meeting, but it made it so available. And it's, I mean, I want to continue the Zoom thing. I would, I would go back to the live ones as well. But the ability to be, when I did the live ones, it was every two weeks. Yeah. yeah. This is every week. This is what yeah. people need. They need the regularity. They need someone that they have been around and a group. This group, I can shut up and you watch these people support each other. It's brilliant. And, and that's the way to do it is that group support, people talking oh with with each other, not to each other, but with each other. One of the things that I, I'm curious what you think, I, I tell people who've been through this and, and trauma in general, sure. say if anybody tells you to get over it, just tell them to go oh. to hell because you don't get over it, but you have to, <laughs> yeah. but you have to come to terms with it in your own because time it, because it, it's right. Because it's part of who you are. Tell you a you story. The night, to to terms with it. the night my father died, the family came over. My Aunt Julia, who was a germ freak and managed to live to be 106, <laughs> comes over that night. And when she's carrying a bottle of Lysol. She comes in, she proceeds to spray the telephone, spray. My father had just died. She's spraying everything. And I said to her, I don't know where it came from. I said, you know, Aunt Julia, I don't think suicide is contagious. Of course, that, 
that kind of quieted the room down a bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Julia, you know, she didn't know where to put the can, but my I tell you what, my mother, and my brothers loved it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's and how people can be. Yeah. I wish that suicide was not contagious, but we have seen that in teenagers. Yeah. And young adults, where there is this really scary contagion factor. Last where, especially. Yeah, where, where there, there are these suicide pacts. And, right. and parents, I, I don't want to scare you, but the best way for you to manage this is talk with your children. Develop that trust with them because they need you. Yep. They really do. They may not want to admit it, but they do. But I, I, I want to come back to you, Larry, for a moment. Was there ever a time over the last 50 plus years where you thought you could have done something different? That if only you'd done this or only done that, something would have changed? You're shaking your head. And I am so fortunate I took that time to massage his back, to go bowling, to go to football games. Uh, it was kind of like a squirrel putting nuts in your mouth, saving them for the winter. You know, I, I saved those memories and I reached out. I didn't know he was suicidal, but I knew he was in great mental pain. And I just tried to be comforting. I, you know, do unto others is big with me. I tried to do for him what I would like someone to do for me if I was going through that. I think this is a really important lesson for people to hear as well because many people feel guilty. Sure. They should have done this, should have done that. If only, if only. So there's the guilt part. Yep. And the guilt is a defense, I think, against just being so powerless. Yeah. Well, I call them the shoulda, woulda, couldas. Yep. And I tell people when you got the shoulda, woulda, couldas, carry it through to the end. And you'll realize you're going to come out of the same place. Yeah. Think of the people, the hardest thing to work with is uh, someone who's lost their child. Yeah. Uh, being a father, I I mean, you expect your father to die. They're older. They're, whatever, you expect that all along. But to lose a child, I that is yeah. the hardest thing to watch. Why do you think that is, Larry? Why is that the hardest? It's part of you, and you want to talk about guilt or what you could have done. It, it'll haunt you. Mm -hmm. It haunts people that go through that. What could I have done? You know, especially the, the mothers. This child lived inside of you. You gave birth to it. You want to think that you could have given it all the love and leadership possible, and then they take their life. <laughs> I mean, I'm a father. I don't know how I'd handle it, but I'm yeah. sure I'm glad I don't have to. Yeah. To the point where, you know, my job is meant to protect you. And and I didn't. Yes, I hear that all the time. And yet, again, if anybody says get over that, tell them to go to hell. But you have to come to terms with it. There's something about it where it leads not just from guilt, but at some point, anger. What about the anger part? Anger for me... The night, the night he died, my mom and my brothers came to my room. Everybody cried on my bed, and I'm the one comforting. And I was at a party a few weeks later, and we were really having a good time. And then it just something hit me. 
and I stood up and I excused myself and I got in my car and I drove to the cemetery where my father was buried and I grabbed onto the gates and I started screaming at him. Why? Why did you do this? It just came unglued all at one time. I cried, I yelled, I shook the gates. And that was that was that for then. The next time I felt something akin to anger was when my first daughter was born. Second time I felt it when my second daughter was born. And that's a great, I, okay, he probably wouldn't have lived to see my grandchildren, but he didn't live to see his own grandchildren. I'm the only one in the family that has children and has grandchildren. And I have taken, when I lived in California, I put them on planes, came back to show them the city of Boston, and we went down to where my grandparents are buried in New Bedford, and I showed them that. And I took them all the, we have pictures of every one of my kids, grandchildren, everybody in the family standing on the front steps of the house in New Bedford where my dad was born because it means everything to me for them to know where they came from and understand that he was a real nice living person. Here's the house. Here's the this. Here's where people are buried. I mean, I still have thoughts about taking his... I've talked to the cemetery where he's at about maybe someday taking him and bringing him back here and being able to bury him with his, with his family. Fortunately, he's buried with some wonderful people. But it seems weird for me to be here and him to be there. Yeah, the distance, being here, being there. You know, when we were off air, we were talking about the scars that people have from suicides uh, and loved ones. And I, I, I remember one of my mentors, Gary Jackson, telling me that people need scars, not open wounds. That the scar says, this is what I've survived. This is part of me. This is part of my memories. Because we can have open wounds that will fester for a long time. That's what I mean. You don't get over it, but you got to come to terms with it. You know? So how, how do you help people in these groups? What, what does happen in a group, Larry? We average about, let's say, 15 people. So out of the 15, let's say 12 have already been coming to meetings, and there might be a few new ones. We start out with some ground rules, assure them of confidentiality, ask them not to use the word should, but if something worked for them, please tell how it worked for you, and because everybody grieves differently. And uh, I assure people that we're here to listen. And so... If the group starts off with silence, I'll pose a question. And usually there's someone that was, and silence is golden in these groups. I, assure, I tell people there will be moments of silence. It's fine. I mean, I meditate daily. Silence is really good for you. Uh, and they just start, and it's like being on this program. It's an hour and a half goes by like nothing. And it's just... My, it's an honor to watch these people interact with each other. It's an absolute honor to have the trust and be able to be there and to feel that they are gaining something out of my experience because that bit about the scars. You, you, you grow a scar that's tougher skin than the other skin. It's, there are, there's benefit from everything you go through. You just have to find it. Yeah. And it ain't easy. No. Yeah, I'll give you some statistics that are very important to me. In the United States, last year, there was close to 50,000 
known suicides. I say known because someone can drive a car into a wall, or, you know, things can happen. Overdose. No, overdose. So there's say 50,000 known suicides. If you take the average number of people who it affects, which the number 20 seems to work pretty good, that's a million survivors in the United States every year. So it's yeah. not like people aren't touched by it. It's not right. like it's uncommon. It's just not spoken about. Right. It's time. Those days are over. Yeah, good. Has, has COVID changed that a little bit? It seems like yes. there's a lot more people talking openly about mental health. There's been more suicides, too, because the yeah, isolation is can be very, very difficult on people that are already feeling isolated and you know, in solitude. And how many, uh, more, yeah. how many more suicides have happened? I think, well, we over what we would expect, and I can only talk in Massachusetts, it's probably gone up about 5%, which to me is a big number. Five. Yeah. yeah. It is a big number. Yeah. You know, a, a, one extra suicide is a big number Amen. because of the impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about how you survive this. I, I want to tell people a little bit about one of the questions that I ask someone. Um, I'll, I'll ask them t- to tell me on their own suicide scale between zero and 10. Great. Say, where where are you on your suicide scale between zero and ten? And no matter what they say, I either add two or subtract two. So if they say I'm a six, I'll say why not an eight? Why not a four? So they have to start thinking what would change in their world to make them more suicidal, but also what will change to make them less suicidal. And let's go there. Maybe that up in residency, a suicide scale. Yeah. You know? And then we look at the I am. So what's happening? The best you can do right now is be suicidal. I don't want you to feel guilt about it. I don't want you to feel shame about it. This is where you are right now. But if you don't like it, we can change it. What needs to change so that you are less suicidal, so that you can survive that one more day? And, you know, it's... It's pretty remarkable how people are willing to talk about this if given the opportunity. No one's ever asked them. That's right. No, no one's asked. Them. Yeah, and that's, I, I work on the suicide hotline. It's there for that. And I'll tell you an amazing thing. If, let's say 100 people call the suicide prevention hotline. Of those people, maybe one suicidal. The rest are desperate, lonely, lonely people who just need someone to care, need yeah. an ear. They will ramble on, and you got to just be there for them. That scale yeah. is very important. Yeah. It's a very important question. It's very important to have them turn it inward and evaluate themselves. Yes, that's right. And then when, when you put it on a scale like that, you're actually shifting your brain to the prefrontal cortex. So you can begin looking at this with some sense of rationale. And I'm not saying that it's irrational to be suicidal, not at all. But you can do something. And when somebody listens, I think what really is is happening is you're being reminded of your value. And you're 
and your humanity. Because I think that's really part of, of why people feel so ready to give up. Yeah. Because I think they've lost their own sense of value. The pain is just too much. Uh, you know, we've, we have two rules with the I am, two truths. Because the four domains interconnect, the home, the social, the biological, and the IC domain, small changes can have big effects. You don't need to change everything. Larry, what small change can you recommend to our listeners so they can help themselves survive when somebody has completed a suicide? Try doing one act, random act of kindness a day. Mm -hmm. One of the greatest things that changed to me when my father took his life is I looked at the guy next to me, saw the person in the elevator in the car that I might have gotten angry about because they cut me off, and I realized I don't know what they're going through. Open the door for somebody. Somebody signaling, let them go pull their car and don't look for a thank you. Just do it. It'll, it'll bring your humanity back. Yeah. It's so true that when you do something for someone else, we've said this with the I am all along. Yeah. Whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. Absolutely. That's what it's about. We all want the same thing. And that leads to the second truth of the I am. You control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Everyone's interested in what you think about them. You're part of someone's home and social domain. The way you see them has an effect on their biological domain. So Larry Shapiro, what kind of influence are you hoping to be? Non-judgmental. <laughs> I want to be the person that's there that they know they can talk to and know it's not going to tell them they're out of their mind. They're bad. They're good. They're in, I was put in the world for something and I watched what my father went through. And if I can give back and help somebody that's going through what he went through, help somebody not finalize the act, then my life's been worth it. Yeah. I don't want to sound overly altruistic, but this is a truth having gone through and what I continue to go through all my life. Yep. Brain Pain by Larry Shapiro. Brain Pain. Please get it. How do they get to the website again, Larry? Brainpainbook.com. All one word. Brainpainbook.com. Larry, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you for being there and giving me the opportunity to share. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Great. See you guys next week. The Dr. Joe Show.